This morning we're going to be looking at Revelation 5, as you can see. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll, we'll be there a lot of the... We'll be in that book the whole morning. So I'm just going to read the first five verses. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, just the setting. This is, this is the throne room of heaven. In chapter 4, the, the, ver- the chapter preceding this chapter, the apostle John is having a vision, and he's, and he's called to go up to the throne room of God. So this is John, the, one of the disciples of Jesus, and he's now in, in the throne room, as it were, in chapter 5, <clears throat> seeing things that have not yet happened, seeing things that are going to happen in the future. And, and he's there in the throne room seeing what's happening. And there is one who is seated on the throne. Now, the, it just says the one who is seated on the throne. But chapter 4 makes it very clear that the one seated on the throne is God Almighty, as we would expect. So God, is sitting on, God Almighty is sitting on the throne, and he's got a scroll in his hand. And what's in the scroll? Well, actually, we don't find out in chapter 5. You know, maybe it's future world events, further revelations into the nature of God, you know, mysteries of the universe, like where the socks go that get lost in the dryer. Probably not. <laughs> but that's not the point. Actually, this morning, as we look at chapter 5, we're really not looking at what's in the scroll. We're more looking at the one who is worthy to open the scroll. And so that's more the focus of what we're looking at this morning. In Deuteronomy, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. God is in control of what kind of truths are revealed to us. There are a lot, of revela- a lot that he's revealed in his word to us over, over history. And there's a lot that's coming that he has revealed as well, a lot of future events. But it's in God's control. It's in the scroll. The scroll is sealed. God's holding it. Ain't nobody taking that scroll out of God's hand if he doesn't want him to. And he decides when, those, when that kind of information, when those revelations are, are, are made known to the rest, of, the rest of us. It's up to him when and how he's going to reveal that. So we see that the scroll is available. It's there in God's hands. It's in his hand. But it says that there's no one who has the authority or is worthy to open it and read inside it. So God's power and greatness are shown in the fact that God is holding this scroll. It's got to be pretty important stuff if God's holding it. But anyone who's going to open it is also going to have to be someone pretty significant. Not just anybody's going to go up there and take the scroll from God's hand and read it. And so the angel is sort of looking around for someone. Who can read it? Who is there who's worthy to open this? Um, Let me just read that and make sure we get the wording right. So in verse 2, the angel says, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And there's no one. There's no one that's found worthy. Um, excuse me, let's look at, um, back to ver- verse 1 for just a moment. He says that the, the scroll is in the right hand of God. 
And I want us to notice that, the right hand of God. The right hand is Hebrew imagery for power and strength. God isn't left-handed, God is right-handed. Well, God's probably ambidextrous, but God's holding the scroll in his right hand, and that's significant. Kings crush with their right hand. In biblical literature, kings vanquish. Kings have victory with their right hand. It's an image of power. It's, and this is God now demonstrating his power, his strength, and his authority to be holding this scroll and what's inside it. So just one example of that some, elsewhere in Scripture is from Psalm 98. It says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Okay, so this is showing us God is holding onto this thing in his right hand. The scroll is in God's right hand. But nobody can be found anywhere who can open the scroll or look inside it to break its seals. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but I asked someone who knew Greek better than me, and so some of you might tell me I'm wrong, and that, that's fine. But it's not as if the angel is saying, gosh, you know, who is there? I wonder if there's someone. Hey, anybody can open this scroll? It's not that. It's more of a rhetorical challenge. All right, who thinks they can come and take the scroll from God's hands? Anybody here think they can do it? And it's more of a, there isn't anybody that can, and, and who, whoever thinks they can come forward, but nobody does. No one can open it and read it, and John is concerned about that, and so much so that he weeps. And then in verse 5, one of the elders says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So the, the elder says, don't worry about it. There is one who can do it. And he describes who this one is. And he doesn't name him, but he describes who this one is. He says he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah, of the root of David. Now we know who that is. Who is it? It's Jesus. That's right. The lion of Judah. That is referring to Jesus' lineage. He was a, he was a Jew, of course. He was from the tribe of Judah. But it's also the imagery of a lion, a powerful lion, one who has vanquished, one who has conquered. The lion's the king of the jungle, it's Aslan. But we, that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Jesus is the powerful king. He has conquered, and he can come and take the scroll. The, it talks about him being the root of, from the, the root of David. That's also a reference to Jesus' lineage, but Jesus' place as king. Because David was a king, and there, you know, the sons of kings are, are part of the kingly line, and Jesus is part of the kingly line as well. That goes back to the book of Isaiah. But, you know, John was a Jew. None of this was lost on John. Oh, of course, Jesus. Yes, Jesus is, is, is the one who's worthy to open the scroll. And does John expect to see a lion? There in the throne room, do you think John was expecting to see a lion? Probably, because the elder said the lion of Judah has vanquished. He has conquered. He's worthy to open the scroll. So John's maybe looking around for a lion. Let's read verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this translation, the ESV doesn't make it really clear, but other versions make it, make it a, a very, seem to say that the lamb is on the throne. And here it says he's between the throne and the living creatures and among the elders, and he's standing. But anyway, the point is, John's maybe looking around for a lion, but he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. 
And not only does he see a lamb, he sees a lamb who's looking pretty bad, who looks as if it's just been slain. But there's some things we want to, I mean, we ask the question, then who is the lamb? And we all say, well, come on, you know that the lamb is Jesus. You're right. But let's think about that. Who is the lamb? The lamb is in the, on the throne on some version, in some versions, or in any case, he's there among the others near the throne. And that's where God just was. The one sitting on the throne holding the scroll is God Almighty. And the lamb is now also on the throne. What does that tell us about Jesus? That Jesus is God. That Jesus and the Father are one. That Jesus is God. And you know what? Kings don't share their thrones, do they? You don't let somebody else sit on your throne. If you're the, if you're the king, if you're the one with power and authority to rule, you don't let somebody else sit beside you on your throne. But here, God is letting, it seems to be allowing the lamb to sit with him on the throne, which makes sense to us, right? Because the lamb, Jesus, the son of God, is also God. But notice also that this lamb looks as if it's just been butchered. And it's kind of crazy. He's looking for this powerful lion who, can con- who is conquered, who has the authority to t- something strong that can come and take the scroll from the hand of God because the elder said that was the one who was worthy. And there's this lamb. Okay, and you know, are you scared of a lion if a lion came in here? Yeah, we'd be scared. If a lamb comes in here, is anyone scared? Is anyone worried at all? I mean, a lamb's not going to do anything. And, and not only that, this is a lamb who looks like he's just been to the slaughterhouse. So he's not in good shape. And it seems contradictory, doesn't it? The lion, the lamb, what what are we talking about? But this is a picture of our Lord. The lion is victorious. He is the one who who has triumphed, conquered sin and death. That's what Jesus has done. He has conquered. He has vanquished the enemy. But how did he triumph? What was the way in which the lion triumphed? He did it on the cross. He triumphed through sacrificial death. On the cross, he didn't act like a lion, did he? You know, sometimes we we, we think, oh, you know, they treated him so poorly and he got an unfair trial, and it's true, and, and he was taken to the cross. It's true. But he didn't, his life wasn't taken from him. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he went down that road. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't want to go through with it if there was another way. If there was a way he could avoid it, he would have preferred that. But he knew what he was doing, and he willingly gave his life. He triumphed on the cross through voluntary sacrifice. He was taunted to come down off the cross, and he could have done that with a powerful display of of his authority, but he didn't. He chose to stay on the cross and and, and be the the slaughtered lamb. Jesus' victory was through weakness, through voluntary sacrifice. And in this scene now in the throne room of heaven, Jesus bears the marks of that sacrifice. He's not the lion sitting on the throne. He's referred to as the lion, but who John sees on the throne is the lamb, and not just the lamb, but the lamb who looks like he's been slain. Because Jesus is there in heaven still bearing the marks of those sacrifices, the sacrifice, still demonstrating what he did for us. The glory of Jesus is not simply that he is victorious. He is victorious. The glory of Jesus is not just Jesus as a powerful lion, and he is that. But it's also how he is victorious, through his willing sacrifice. 
when God gave himself for us, for each of us. The glory of Jesus' victory is the willing sacrifice of the sinless for the sinners. The song said that we are faultless, but we are very, very faulty. But we are seen as faultless because of what Jesus did for us. He redeemed us through his death. And you know, living on the mission field and um, working, in the, in working in several different, a couple different languages, you get some really cool, at least I like the, 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 the ways that different languages sort of add depth to meaning in, in some cases. If I could have that slide, that first slide. So the word for redeem in French is racheté. And racheté literally means to buy back. It means to buy again. And so when we're redeemed, there's a picture right there of what Jesus did for us. Jesus' death on the cross redeemed us. It paid the price for our sins. We were born into sin. Each of us was born into sin and belongs in the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus' death on the cross pays the price, buys us back. Hashate, buys us back, puts us in the kingdom of God's glorious light. So we have been redeemed by what Jesus did. You know, when Jesus gave his life on the cross, I think Satan believed he would gain his greatest victory, right? Son of God came to earth, let's kill him, let's get rid of him. And Satan would have believed that he gained his greatest victory. But I think Jesus' death on the cross was a victory that caught, was, was in fact a victory that caught Satan completely off guard. Because it was victory through weakness. And that doesn't make any sense. I mean, as believers, you, you understand that even if it's a mystery. But generally speaking, logically in our society, in our world, you're not, a victor, you're not a victor through weakness. In the Olympics, it's not the weak guys that are winning the gold medals. It's not the, the, the gals who are pretty good at their sport who are winning the gold medals. It's the best. Victory through weakness is illogical. But it required humility and willing sacrifice on the part of our Lord. And I just don't think that would have made any sense to Satan. Because what, what, is, what brought Satan down? Pride. So if Satan is completely proud, humility doesn't make any sense to him. And so I think that Jesus' willing death, that kind of humility on the cross would have caught him completely off guard. But that's the Lord that we serve. That's the Lord that we follow. We follow the king who lays down his rights for his followers. We follow the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And to me, that makes the gospel that much more amazing, that much more powerful. So let's continue and read verses 7 and 8. And he went and took this, so now the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the lamb comes and takes the scroll out of the one who's seated on the, on the throne. The lamb comes and takes the scroll from the hand of God Almighty, from the right hand of God Almighty. <clears throat> Chapter 4 describes, and we sang about it a bit this morning, <clears throat> Chapter 4 describes the king, God, on the throne with majestic terms, and I won't go into those, but he's described as powerful and majestic and, you know, one with incredible authority sitting on the throne. Imagine taking this, the scroll, taking something like that from the right hand of a king. You better be sure what you're doing. 
And, now, and it's not only a lamb taking the scroll, but it's a weak butchered lamb taking the scroll, this thing, from the, hand, from the hand of the king of the universe. But here's the thing. God lets him take the scroll. God doesn't say, what do you think you're doing? God lets the lamb take the scroll from him. And the moment he does, before this, I mean, the lamb doesn't even open the scroll here in this chapter. But the moment that the lamb takes the scroll, the elders and the living creatures fall down and worship. They fall down and worship him. In chapter 4, the elders and the living creatures are giving God, the Father, the one on the throne, they're giving him praise and honor and glory, and they're worshiping him. And now in chapter 5, when the, when the lamb demonstrates that he is worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God, they fall down on their knees as well and worship him. The lamb is certainly worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God. Let's go on and read in verses 9 and 10. Now this is, and they, so this is the elders and the living creatures, and they sang a new song. Okay, so apparently it's not a song that we've heard yet. That'll be cool. Hear a new song in heaven. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So they, the moment... He, Jesus, the moment the lamb demonstrates that he is worthy, they fall down and worship him just the way they were worshiping God. And they're, and they're worshiping him for his worthiness for, because he was victorious as, a, as a, the lion, the kingly lineage who defeated sin and death. And they worship him as the lamb who is worthy and has all merit, who was slain and purchased people from God, from ev- for God from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And that's a powerful passage, that bit about tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But now this is the part that I think gets really cool. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So the drama in heaven there's who's, who's worthy to open the, to take the scroll. The lamb takes the scroll. We talked about that. The moment he does, the, t- the four and the 24, so there's a choir of 28 that sing, followed by another choir, followed by another choir. So there's three choirs that break out in song, one after the other, as soon as Jesus does that. <clears throat> the four living creatures, that's their job, more, as I see described in chapter 4, is to worship God. But after Jesus takes, after the lamb takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, so a fairly small choir, a choir of 28, sings and worships God, worships Jesus specifically because the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And then a second choir, <clears throat> myriads upon myriads, or some versions say 10,000 times, times 10,000, which is 100 million. I think the point is a lot. <laughs> a whole bunch of angels are singing the worth and the worthiness of the Lamb. 
And then a third choir, which is made up of every creature everywhere, which is all creatures everywhere. I'm pretty sure the, word for, the, the Greek word for all means all. Everything praises God and the Lamb. So there's this buildup of praise with 28, and then, you know, several million or hundreds of millions or a whole bunch, and then every creature everywhere, everywhere is singing praise to the Lamb. So it just builds and it ends with this crescendo of praise and worship. And so my question is, at this point, who will not worship Jesus? Who will not be worshiping Jesus? Because it looks to me like this third choir includes the condemned, those who don't believe, those who haven't trusted. Does it include gophers? Does it include pine cones or amoebas? Does it include demons? Does it include Satan himself? It looks like it. It looks like for a moment in time when Jesus is declared and shown to be the one who is worthy, everything shuts down. And we don't know how long, but for a period of time, everything shuts down while all of creation, including us, worships Jesus, praises God and the Lamb. That's the way it's phrased, praises God and the Lamb. The three choirs worship the Lamb because He and God the Father are alone, alone are worthy of all, all, all praise. And that's the point at which Jesus, this is at the point at which Jesus is revealed to be worthy and is celebrated for bringing redemption to mankind. Not only is, his worth, is He worthy, but He has also been declared to be the one who brings redemption to all of mankind or offers it to all of mankind. All this, and we haven't even seen what's in the scroll yet. But the point is, is that Jesus, the lamb, the lion, is worthy to open the scroll. I want to focus for a moment on what that means, worth and worthiness. If I can have that first, that next slide. So actually, the, the word worship comes from an older English version of worship. So you didn't know you were getting a language lesson today, but we've got to, actually got a few more. But worship is worship, the, the, the one's worthiness. That's where we get the idea. That's where we get the word for worship. And so when we're worshiping God, which we've done this morning, we're worshiping Jesus, we're declaring, you are worthy. You are the one who has worth. Now, another, lang another language that we speak is fufule. And um, that word on the right is tedungal. And tedungal is the T-E-D-D -D is the, the root means heavy or weighty. And the word that the Fulani people use for glory or worship is tedungal. So it's the idea of weight or heaviness. God's, God, is, God and Jesus are worth, their worth is, is so great, it's so heavy, it's overpowering. Jesus Christ is the only one other than God worthy to have the access you know, to, the, to the mysteries of the universe until God reveals them to us. But he is worthy because of who he is and what he has done for us. Chapter 5 underscores that fact when we have these three choirs and this emphasis on worship, this emphasis on the worth-ship of Jesus. And you know, at this point in the chapter, the action might sort of seem to drag for some of us. And maybe it's because of our Western culture. And you know, the first part is pretty interesting. The lion, the lamb, the scroll, the angels yelling. But then this, okay, they're singing. Oh, that's cool. They're singing again. Oh, yeah, that's nice. They're singing again. But 
I think it drags because in our Western culture, we really don't grasp, well, Western culture or not, because we really don't grasp the ultimate worth of Jesus. Is it possible that we really don't get how worth, worthy he is, how awesome he is, how great is his salvation, how holy God is, therefore how amazing it is that he has offered us salvation in Jesus Christ? This is the one. Jesus is the one with a capital O. You know, we tell our kids when they're acting selfish, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you. But the world really does revolve around Jesus. I mean, there isn't anyone higher to worship. The world, the universe does revolve around Jesus. And so he is the center of praise and worship, and he should be. And these three choirs, the third one, including us, and everything is emphasizing that. He's the ultimate object of all our worship, of all glory, of all honor, of all majesty. But I think in American culture, we're a little bit far removed from those concepts because, you know, we, we didn't, we're done with that king thing. We're going to do democracy and one man, one vote. And, you know, that's, that's, that's good. I, I like democracy. But because I think we're removed from kings and rulers, like a lot of the world has and like was, it was true in, 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 the, middle, in the, the Near East, we sort of lose, lose touch with some of these concepts of honor and glory and power and majesty. But this scene in heaven focuses on just how worthy Jesus is. And like I said, for a moment, everything shuts down while the universe takes time, apparent, maybe um, certainly against the will of some, to honor Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Let me read verses 9 and 10 again. We're going to go back. I, mean, I said we'd come back to this. So at, right after he takes, the lamb takes the scroll, the 24 and the four bow down and they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. I believe in heaven. I believe that this verse teaches us that in heaven there will be a representative, at least one representative from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. We have that next picture. This is just a, a, an image that someone went with in our mission, SIM, has, had, had uh, a painting someone did to sort of portray that, you know, people coming out of different people groups and ethnic groups coming out of the different continents. And of course, there's, there's more than that. Um, will be in heaven. You and I will worship around the throne with folks from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's an awesome thing. You know, there are people, there are still people groups today that don't have a believer from them. The Fulani, the Wodabe, whom we work with, who Paul mentioned, they do, there are believers in those, in those people groups, but still largely unreached. But there are people groups who don't have any. There are some people groups a lot less than there used to be, but there are some people groups around the world who still have really not heard and grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is the church. This is the bride of Christ. And we will all worship together someday with these folks. Okay, but so that Christ's sacrificial death was global in scope, right? It includes all people. It's offered to all people, all tribes, peoples, nations, and languages. I believe that Jesus' offer of redemption through his death on the cross was global in its scope because 
Sin, the curse of sin is also fully global. The curse of sin touches everyone, doesn't it? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one has escaped the curse. All nations, all peoples, we're all in the same boat. The spread of sin is global. And so God's plan for redeeming mankind had to also be global. Well, it didn't have to be, but God made it equally global to, re- to, to redeem us from the curse, from the fall. God's redemptive plan is a scarlet, scarlet thread that runs through Scripture. This is um, when I was in, in, in uh, university studying Bible classes and missions classes, one of the, uh, our professors talked about the scarlet thread that runs through Scripture. Maybe you've heard that. It was an idea unique to him. Unique to him. But there is a scarlet thread, scarlet for the blood. There is a scarlet thread running through Scripture from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And if you look for it, you can find it. And it's an awesome thing to see that God planned it well in advance, but he has always planned to redeem his people. So in fact, when you're in Genesis 3, reading about the, reading about the fall, reading about the curse, Adam and Eve has sinned, and now God shows up, and he's talking with Adam and Eve and the serpent, and he's sort of handing out the curses. You know, this is the result for Adam, for men. This is the result for Eve, for women. This is the result specifically for the, for the serpent, the curse. This is the curse. This is n- but nine verses after the fall, just nine verses after sin entered the world. Who knows? You know, an hour later, maybe not even that. I don't know. He's already talking. God is already making allusion to the redemption that he will bring mankind through Jesus Christ. So if we can have that next passage. Uh, Yeah. So God is saying, now he's speaking to the serpent. And I will put enmity, I will put conflict between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of, an offspring of the woman, and specifically referring to Jesus. He will crush your head, serpent and you will strike his heel. And that happened. The enemy, Satan, struck Jesus' heel. Jesus died. We said Jesus gave his life, and he did. But the, the enemy, Satan, you know, there was, he was struck his heel, and Jesus died. And someday in the future, Jesus will crush the head of Satan. For those of you who know snakes, what is the surest way to really make a, sh- a snake powerless? You can lop off its head, but those nerves still go, and, and people, children, you know, have, have died from playing with the severed head of, of venomous snakes. You know, the, the, the snake didn't have a body, but that head will still bite and deliver venom. The surest way to, to kill a snake, and we've seen lots of people do this in Africa, I mean, they crush the head. They make that thing so worth, you know, so powerless, it can't do anything. But this voice, this verse, points to Jesus' future victory over Satan. And he, you will crush his, he will crush your head and he will strike his heel. So the beginning of the scarlet thread, we see it already in Genesis, just moments, just verses after sin enters the world. God is already talking about it. And then he goes on again in, in Genesis uh, chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abram for the first, for the first time and is, be, begins to... Uh, to talk with Abram about a covenant, about a, an, a, the relationship that, he's going to ha- that God is going to have with Abram and with the people of Israel, Abram's descendants, the Jews. Abram was the first Jew. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is a direct descendant of Abram. 
and as God is describing the covenant, sort of the deal for following him, if we can have that next passage, he says to Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. That's cool. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples on earth have the opportunity of salvation through you, meaning through one of your descendants, through Jesus Christ. So the plan of redemption came, was announced in Genesis 3, again announced again in Genesis 12, and God's already putting it into, you know, already setting it up and getting it started. So it's a scarlet thread. Jesus himself saw that, the global nature of, of redemption, in, and we see that in John chapter John chapter 12, Jesus said, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He's making a reference. He's making a reference to when he would be crucified, when he would be on the cross. And he's saying, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I will give all men the opportunity to be saved. And now here in Revelation 5, at the end of the story, where Jesus is receiving praise and honor for having achieved that worldwide, completely widespread redemption. Christ is for all the nations. Now we recognize that not all the nations choose to follow him, but he is for all the nations. And that's what missions is all about. As you know, Christianity began in the east, in a little corner of the world called Israel. And Israel is sort of the crossroads of three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And the Roman Empire, of course, was there, and they built all these roads, and it was a great way for the gospel to spread, and you probably heard this. And though the gospel spread in various directions from Israel, it primarily grew strong early on in Europe. I mean, it's, it had its greatest growth in Europe, which then came to North America, and then that included North America and us in North America as a result of that. But for centuries, there have been Christians around the world, but for centuries, Christianity has sort of been centered in the West, in Europe and in North America. And in the last couple hundred years, Missionaries have gone from the West to the rest, is what, the, is what we say. From the West to the rest, or from the first world to the third world, or from the first world to the two-thirds world, however you want to phrase it. But in our lifetime, in, in the lifetime of each of us, everyone in here, the center of gravity in the Christian church around the world has shifted. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Do you know that on any given Sunday, there are more people worshiping worshiping God in communist China than there is in all of Western Europe. You're more likely to find a Baptist in the Congo than you are in Britain. Christianity is spreading geographically. It's been in a lot of parts of the world for a long time, but it continues to really spread geographically. Not completely, but it's really, really growing. God's plan to see every tribe and tongue and people and nation runs right through scripture. We saw that with the scarlet thread and we're seeing it happening in our lifetime. It centers on Christ, on the one who is worthy. And it's unfolding in our day. Missionaries now go from the rest to the West. You probably know this. There are missionaries coming from places that were the unreached, now coming to the United States to reach Westerners because they recognize that we're a fairly... We want to say we're a Christian nation or a godly nation, but the reality is we're a fairly godless nation in a lot of ways. But here's the thing. If within the last 10 years, and I can't put a date on it, if you count up all the Christian 
I think you have to say Protestant because it includes Catholic. But if you look at all the Protestant missionaries going out in the world from one place to another, over half of them are not from the West. So you catch that? If you look at all the Christian missionaries in the world, Western missionaries from you know, Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, we are less than half. Which is awesome because that means that the rest of the world, you know, the, the, the places where we took the gospel, and let's face it, it was mainly, the, not all, but mainly the Westerners that took the gospel, those folks are now doing and actually coming our way. Our, our mission, SIM, we work in 50 countries. We send missionaries from, oh, I don't know, about that many countries. So when we're on the field, our fellow missionaries are not necessarily you Americans and Canadians, though there are a lot of us, but we're, we work alongside missionaries from other countries. But just this last week, our mission, SIM, approved the appointment of our new international director. Okay, so this is the guy who's the head of, all, of SIM all over the world, and guess where he's from? He's from Nigeria. His name is Joshua Bogunjoko. He's actually worked in Niger. He's a, he's a really good man. We know him not really well, but we know him. And in fact, he's, um, Pastor John has invited him to come speak uh, October 7th here at Calvary. So really quite an awesome opportunity to hear him speak. So hope we're not, the invitation has been made. I guess the details aren't in place. But just an example of how the church is spreading. We, the Bankies, have the privilege of seeing God's church planted and developed among many peoples in Niger. Peoples with names like Tamajik, Fulani, Wodabe, Hausa, the Songhai, the Zarma, the Gurmanche, the Manga, and some Arab peoples as well. If we can have that next image. We already saw this image, but this is what, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about God's church being planted among a multitude of people groups. And it's, for us, it's a huge privilege to be a part of that. Paul says in Romans, For there is no difference between Jew and Greek, because they all have the same Lord, who gives richly to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus came for all people. All who call on him will be saved. But as we, um, as we, we go today, and we think about the message and think about Revelation 5 and sing the song, the Revelation song that we're going to sing again in a moment, let's keep some of these things in our minds. Let's remember Jesus' worth as the victor, as the lion. Let's remember Jesus' worth as the willing sacrifice, the lamb, how the lion achieved, how he, how he conquered. And let's remember his ultimate incomprehensible incomprehensible worth worth more than all the choirs of the world can ever sing and let's look for his word let's look for this in God's word because it's there as you read God's word look for the scarlet thread it's in there and it's, a, it's an amazing thing to see let's seek to incorporate that into our personal worship today but throughout the week throughout the things that we do Let's praise God. Praise God with me for the representation that we will see and be a part of one day in heaven. Believers from all tribes and tongues and people and nations. And I encourage you to see how you can be a part of missions in, in whatever capacity that is, whether it's through prayer or giving or encouraging others to go. Because these are investments for eternity. We have seen, God has allowed us to see how that will pay off someday. Let's close in prayer.